Welcome to The Well, a podcast about the spirited world of cocktails, the alcohol that's in them, and the bars that serve them. Of all the things we consume, the world of booze is perhaps the most riddled with misunderstandings, mysticism, and downright consumer confusion. Our aim is to make you a more mindful imbiber so you can live your best life. My name is Rodney Sino Cruz, a DJ and music engineer who is on the quest to drink more intelligently. And I'm Paymon Bamani, a lawyer turned bartender who will be the seeing eye dog as we navigate through the muddled world of alcohol. So episode one, we are here to discuss absence. Absence. You know, I think that's appropriate for the first episode because, you know, we're talking about uh, debunking myths and uh, mysticism. I think the first thing that comes to mind in the world of alcohol when I think of mystique right. um, and misunderstandings is absinthe. So explain some of this mystique because um, I think most people don't have a, have a really in-depth view of absinthe. They know that it was illegal at some point and it became legal very recently in the last 10, 15 years. And um, still people seem afraid of it. Just, just the mention of absinthe. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, a, it's a number of things. I mean, for one, it's a spirit that Americans and the American palate hasn't had really much access to for about a century, with the exception of the last few years. But over the course of the last century, I mean, it's a very limited exposure to something. What are the origins of absinthe? It's a European, is it a French-Swiss thing? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, the Swiss, I believe, are credited with, with inventing it. And the French, I think, kind of took it and put their own uh, twist on it. The main one being uh, using grape distillate, you know, brandy, instead of a neutral grain uh, alcohol that the Swiss were using. But in a more general sense, uh, absinthe follows a long line of tradition of, you know, producing medicinal products or things for medicinal consumption and using alcohol as a vehicle for that delivery because, you know, this is before the age of modern medicine. And so distillation, when it came about hundreds of years ago, was seen as a huge technological advancement. And in fact, many scholars argue that it's not the creation of beer and wine that is the mark of an advanced civilization, but rather learning how to distill because you can't distill by accident, really. You Can know, you uh, as, br- just briefly go over what distillation is? Yeah, well, distillation essentially is taking a fermented organic material, grape juice, beer, apple juice, and you know that fermentation has alcohol. What distillation does is concentrate that alcohol. Captures it. Captures it. Usually, most commonly be the application of heat you know boil the thing have the thing steam up uh and the particles steam up into and 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 then have it condensed and on the other end the particles that are more uh i suppose you know some of the more organic materials stay behind the essence the spirit if you will travels on the other side so is that the origin of the word spirit Uh, probably okay i mean i'm not an etymologist but i think that certainly makes sense so absinthe has medicinal roots um how would you describe the flavor most people, in, uh, I think Americans would say licorice, but I think the more accurate uh, description would be anise. I think the common, the common flavoring components of absinthe are anise or aniseed, fennel, in addition to wormwood. You know, and, and so that herbal, herbaceous kind of flavor profile is something that the world is a bit more familiar and okay with. And going back to, uh, I think, as far as why Americans maybe uh, have so much misunderstanding of what it is, in addition to the fact that we haven't had much access to it for over the last 100 years, it's also on its own a very, 
for lack of a better word, extreme product. Right. Most, you know, whether you're talking about whiskey or gin or vodka or tequila, or whatever, most of the time they're coming at around 80, 80, proof, 80 right. proof, which is 40% or so ABV. Absinthe is coming in at around 100 to 120 proof. But essentially, you have something that's quite on its own, very difficult to drink. And then Straight. you add flavor uh, profiles that Americans find you know, disagreeable to them. Uh, and you have kind of a nice mix of, uh, of something that, that's hard to market, right? hard, hard to market. Well, hard, to, difficult to market because oftentimes the marketing people themselves don't know much about the product. And so I think that might be one of the reasons why so much of, uh, the mystique around absinthe, both for better or worse, uh, centered around the idea of it as a hallucinogenic and, and you can go crazy and, and, and party wild and, and, you know, make love all night or whatever. And it was a double-edged sword. On one hand, it's what got absent banned. On the other hand, once the band was lifted, that was kind of what, how it was kind of marketed for that a lot of people. That was its marketing. That plus, was, yeah. and a lot of, you know, college frat kids and stuff, like they saw it as an even quicker way to get drunk. It's too bad we were not in college anymore. <laughs> when this when this got all you know unleashed yeah i think uh adios motherfucker was uh <laughs> was hard drink so uh, let's talk about our guest because he actually is the expert on absinthe and he'll go over more in depth a lot of the background and the history of absinthe so um yeah tell me about our guest yeah so josh lucas uh a good friend of mine i mean he's probably forgotten more about absinthe uh than than i've than I've even drank, you know. Um, he is a bartender, a magician, uh, an event planner extraordinaire, and an absinthe uh, aficionado. We're lucky to have him on the show today to kind of clear up a lot of rumors and uh, set the record straight on absinthe. All right, so stay tuned for our interview with Josh Lucas. You know, looking around your apartment, you love absinthe. I mean, you got. Four more absinthe fountains than I do, and I have zero. Those are just those are <laughs> some of them. Those are some of them. Yeah. Um, so how did you? Uh, how did absinthe spark your? Uh, you know, how did your love for absinthe come about? I I think I originally got turned on to the anise world uh, back when I was cooking in New York back in two thousand and two, uh, and the chef made bouillabaisse and uh, brought down pastis. He brought down Ricard and. Uh, he was like, you got to drink a little bit of this. And a lot of chefs cook with this. And it wasn't in my arsenal. I mean, he was teaching me everything. And so that flavor was very interesting for me. Of course, the whole three years of cooking in New York was like a lot of education for me. That's when it sparked. Uh, and then getting trained in alcohol with like, let's take this seriously. In 2010, working at the tar pit, going through the categories. And, you know, I've been a magician since I was like 11 or 7 or whatever. The oldest photo I have of me being a magician. And um, uh, I think it started growing there. And then when I was working at Honeycut, the ambassadors came over to me and they were like, there's a role that we think you'd be perfect for. And they were like, it's the Ricard Pastis Pernod Absinthe Ambassador. And I was like, okay, I'll do it. I'm pretty sure that I'm well equipped on culinary world and cocktail world. And uh, everybody was like, and you're a magician. How perfect is that absent the magic? <laughs> so, you know, I, I was like, sure, let's do it. I remember a lot of people that were interviewing me from Pernod Ricard, which I heard later, they were like, the dude's kind of weird. And they're like, he's homeschooled. That's what they do. They're weird. So I was like, 
So it's like there's a bunch of there's a bunch of crazy ups and downs with it. But that's there, is, there seems to be a correlation between homeschool and, and magician practitioners. Is that a, is that a thing, or am I just sure? No, <laughs> there are people that that like <laughs> want to like, escape their reality. They go to a party and they're like, man, if I could just know how to talk to someone about a topic, uh, let me just do a magic trick magic and everybody will love me. That wasn't the case for me. I'm going to write a book one day called Homeschool Strikes Again. Speaking about magic. And, you know, it's fortuitous that we're also talking about absinthe. Obviously, there's a lot of myth and, you know, folklore. How do things get to the point where absinthe seems to be so tied to the mystical? Well, it's, uh, it's considered uh, a stimulant, an upper of sorts, because, I mean, a lot of people have a controversy with that because all alcohols are downers. But, I mean, I met with some biochemists saying, is there proof in the fact of when someone consumes agave distillates or fruit distillates mm. to be considered a stimulant instead of a downer um, when having grains or sugar beet or sugar cane. I got mixed results by the two biochemists that I talked with. One of them was like, the difference is in the small details of the distillate and that ethanol that's being captured and the other percentile of the liquid that goes with it. The other one was like, you can't tell the difference. You can't tell ethanol from ethanol when it's distilled from two different things. And so... I don't focus on the topic, but I will say this, the other elements that go with, with absinthe, the fact that it's has all these herbs and, and antibacterial things that go in with it. Uh, star anise is the, one of the most antibacterial, antifungal elements on earth, mainly coming from Vietnam and China. And 80% of it that's harvested is used to combat a lot of diseases. And uh, Tamiflu is a huge buyer of star anise oils. So you have green anise, and you have star anise. Green anise comes from Spain mostly, and that's another antibacterial element. That's a lot more. You need a lot more green anise uh, seeds to get the oils that you could get from the star anise and the pods that come from it. The anatol, and the anatol is like the the liquid. And the, the way I describe it is basically when you have dish soap, and when you add water to dish soap, it starts to cloud up and bubble. And those are lots of little tiny bubbles that are frothing up in the dish soap. That's what anatol is. So when you have it in absinthe and you add the water example per is 136 and when it goes below 90 those oils separate and they start to lose become cloudy that's the oil separating and becoming their own their own element and if you were to raise the proof back above 90 they push together and they become clear again or green in the bottle with the chlorophyll the thing is is that there's a change in the in the liquor just by adding water there's Melise, there's the, the form of chlorophyll that comes from stinging nettle. There's so many things that go in the absinthe that makes it a stimulant in the fact that it's a medicine. You know, its job was to disinfect water and to fight malaria and cold and flu. It was created to be put in the water at hospitals starting around Cuvée, Switzerland. And then it started to get in the hands of a guy named Major Dubier. And this is around 1772. And then he called upon his uh, family member to help him make a distillate. And that was uh, Henry Louis Pernod. And they started that distillery around 1776. And then it started growing so much, they went from Cuvée, Switzerland, just on the other side of the field, to Pontalier, France. And he established Pernod in 1805. And so having that started, their basis when they first started was 16 liters a day. And you're going from 1805 making 16 liters a day up until 18, 
80, where they're making 125,000 liters a day. That growth is insane. It was such a necessary element for countries to survive. If you give absinthe to your soldiers and they go around, they don't have to spend so much time disinfecting their water. You're now putting four parts water, one part absinthe, and you're now going to disinfect the water. Taken as a medicine, it's incredibly beneficial. So it's transitioned from medicinal utility to recreational drink. Right. And so you have this this stimulant and this thing that's going on and um, it's a relaxing thing. It doesn't really challenge you to chug it. Everybody loves these flavors except for Americans. And there's a reason for it because Americans have what was called the downfall of the American palate. Uh, around 1905, everyone's going to New York to eat steaks. It's a mixture of Italian and French cuisines the protein that comes out of the America, out of America is insane. It's perfect. Like people are adoring how we're getting all this agricultural protein. And then prohibition hits. Immediately in the first five, six years, restaurants are going to close because they can't make any wine sauce. And the profits that you make out of alcohol doesn't make up for the loss that you have by spending so much money on food. So as alcohol becomes illegal, Everything that's going to be made is going to be done with the fact that it's just based on food. And food at that point now has to start becoming something that lasts longer. And just as we're getting out of prohibition, we're going into the Great Depression. So now you can't even afford to buy anything if you wanted to. So now things that last longer on the shelves are really important. From 1920 to 1929, restaurants will triple in the United States, but those restaurants are diners. And diners and cafes are basically meant to feed children, the most important mouth in the house. Children want soft, sweet, salty, and chewy. There's no bitterness in there. So you're not going to have anything with anise or arak or anything or, or fernet or any of that, right? So they want Wonder Bread and they want Spam and they want things that can just be chewy and salty and sweet, soft. We're trying to make things go faster in the sense of like, we don't have time to make food at the house anymore because as women start entering the workforce during world war ii which is the third big punch to the palate of americans the average cooking at home goes down 36 hours and so now it's take it out of the package heat it up and get it to the the kids basically from 1920 1944 no one knows what good cuisine is anymore and that also leads to immigration the heart sellers act there was a cap they put on bringing in the chinese uh koreans Basically, anybody that was not typically white, it handicapped us in what we were going to be able to influence. And even if they did come in, you got someone from Thailand coming in. What are they going to do? They don't want to make their authentic food. They're trying to, to fit in as much as they can. And basically, we have a cheese whiz palate, is what some of them say, or a culinary holocaust, is what some of them say. Yeah, fascinating that you mentioned that about like Thai people coming here. You know, the famous LA Thai restaurant, Jet Lada, you know, now they're known for their spicy you know, Southern Thai cuisine. But she, you know, when you talk to Jazz, the owner, she says, you know, when we first came here, this stuff that you see on the menu was all off menu. We did the regular stuff that you'd expect, you know, basically Pad Thai. And like when Thai people would come in, they'd make the other stuff. And then eventually as, you know, American palate began to kind of recover. So would you say we're in a renaissance, the rebirth of the American palate? Culinary-wise, like the, the food we're ingesting for the past especially the past 10 years, has changed incredibly. This talking to farmers, this getting produce and things out, going back to an heirloom set of mind, 
is incredibly powerful. Someone the other day asked me, do I think the whole fresh juice phase will go away? I was like, I don't think it'll go away in the sense of people now know a crappy daiquiri or a margarita, and then they're going to know the one that's made with fresh juice. And you don't go back from that. Yeah. Unless your grand, unless your parents gave up on that perspective, which is why that's three generations basically that gave up on food until it just came back now. And it's fascinating that you mentioned that about the American palate. You know, if you look at the old versions of the joy of cooking, there are dishes in there, the recipes in there that you don't see anymore. Recipes like on like how to cook possum, you know, badger, like all these sorts of things that were like American frontier food that was like taken from and put into a cookbook and adapted to, you know, the everyday house. And like that's lost its lost its way as well. So, well, this is how you debone a schnauzer. <laughs> I think uh, it would be good to, you know, kind of explain what is the difference because there are, as far as I understand, and you correct me if I'm mistaken, two general kind of ways of making absinthe, one being the more preferred route that the quality absinthe makers make and the other one being the cheaper route. Mm. There's a lot of great absinthe out there, but there's a lot of bad ones. And it's because someone's taking a white whiskey and basically putting the word absinthe on it. You know, there's no law for it. And they, even then, the laws that do exist, exist now as of 1997 in the United States, no one cares. Even if someone's like, that's not the Wormwood. Dude, no one cares about Wormwood anymore, except for the folklore in a bar. The, the thing that goes on right now is people taking a white whiskey and just being like, yeah, let's make an absinthe. Let's make it a different color than green. And then you, you stray away from the fact that it was like... Brands went through such incredible links to make sure it was a considered a medicine. And now it's just a tacky topic that you put on a bottle and you want to sell it. That's one reason that I get upset is like, there's no way you sourced your, your herbs and your, and your spices that go in here at an appropriate place. You probably just Amazon primed them and threw them in and considered yourself like a genius. So the sourcing is one issue, but also method of production is the other issue, right? How they get that flavor into the spirit, Mm -hmm. right? So the main example of Pernod is they have the still at at, uh, the Pernod distillery basically holds 2,000 liters. What they do is they take the 2,000 and they put in um, grand wormwood and a lot of green anise. So that goes in with a bunch with with a steeping process, and then they distill it. And when it comes out on the other end, they only keep ten percent of what they distill, right? So the first hundred eighty to two hundred liters is the head. They throw that away. It's got all the methanol. The heart is two hundred and one thousand six hundred liters. One thousand six hundred fifty liters is considered the tail, and they don't touch that either. So out of every two thousand liters, they only keep ten percent. Why do they not? Because it needs to be considered that holy section of the distillate that is a medicine. And we need to, we, we should probably dedicate a whole another uh, episode on just what it, what those three terms, head, heart, and tails mean and what distillation actually is. Because it isn't, it, it is an art uh, practiced by people who have a, who have a, also a science background. Right. It's basically art for scientists. I mean, it's because it isn't just one thing. They have determined that this is where they're they're what they're going to consider their product. Yeah. Right. And that's incredibly important. Also, what you're making it from. It's made from grapes. Even during the phylloxera era, 
which comes around the late 1840s, uh, when phylloxera starts to plague France, Pernod never switched to grains. They, they released a manual, and I have the manual that they have from 1896, that gives the employees, this is exactly what's in our product. This is exactly how we've survived. And this is like a statement from doctors and from farmers about how we're doing what we're doing, and we won't budge. Which is a bummer, because like 20 years later, they're going to be thrown out. But uh, And they switch to grain eventually. No, they they don't do that. They absinthe becomes illegal. Oh, right. About the you know the whole absinthe becoming illegal. Um, that's, uh, that's something I wanted to jump into as well because how did we get to the point where it became this demonized green substance? Like from all the stuff that I read, uh, I see lots of similarities between another demonized green substance in terms of how uh, it all came about. Well, there's a lot of there's a lot of talk about how it happened. The number one reason that absinthe became illegal was because it was made from grapes. That was the whole thing. So when phylloxera starts to hit Europe, it starts in the southern Rhone Valley. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess I should clarify phylloxera. Is that like a parasite? Or- it's yeah. like this little mothy type looking bug. And it's fascinating because I've heard two stories. One was that U.S. gifted a bunch of different species of grapevines to uh, Europe. And then I heard another one that a um, agricultural scientist took them from America and brought them to France and didn't realize that there were seed, there were eggs of phylloxera in there. So basically, there's like a waxy coat on the bark of American grapevines. And when they land on that, they don't like the bitterness, so they leave it. But they can still lay their eggs around it. But it doesn't become, it doesn't get into it. It doesn't start to dig down in and infect it with like eggy pus. And so when Southern Rhone Valley starts to get their infestation, um, it starts in the south and makes its way north. Now, the Languedoc region is the largest wine region on earth, and the the soil there isn't to their liking, so they mainly push forth, but north. And it's interesting because at that time, they're trying to figure out what's, what these bugs are. They're all female. As the females start to go from one generation of going, like, go another four or five years, plaguing more and more areas... And they're leaving their seeds so that when they, even if they uproot the, the vines and you plant new ones, the bugs will still be around and they come back and they eat those again. Mm-hmm. So they're realizing that the species is female and then the female can impregnate themselves. And then a fourth generation of the plague, males start to be found, but males don't even last long enough to eat a meal. As soon as they hatch, they impregnate and then they die. And that's it. <laughs> right? I mean, it's pretty crazy that there's like, okay, now there's another style of... Sounds like the human race. <laughs> <laughs> you have some in and out, and you're in and out, and you're done. So that plague basically takes... Uh, France alone goes from 82.5 million hectoliters down to 23 million hectoliters. So you lose basically 75% of your yield. The 20% that is still there, over half of that is being harvested to make absinthe. So because the wine world doesn't know how to fight this, the only thing they know is how to fight what they do have control of, which is absinthe. And so they push. I mean, it takes a long time. The panic starts around 1850s. Uh, the major push for it happens around the uh, 1880s, where the posters, and now that there's this demonization of what's going on, it's attractive to artists. 
they kind of like this idea that I can drink this and start getting a tap. There is already a thing with like artists doing opium and drinking apps at the same time, but now they're combining that idea together. And I mean, the stories that I could go into of newspaper clippings and the folklore that goes with absence is just... And that was right around the time that the kind of bohemian uh, subcultures, bohemian lifestyle was taken yeah, off. Yeah, everything was taken more. That's where the absinthe fountains start coming around and people... Um, I mean, putting sugar in your absinthe was something that the Swiss started because the, the they didn't they didn't source enough of the herbs that the French absinthe was getting hold to because there's specific traditions where you're going to have Swiss absinthe, you're going to have French absinthe and all that. But So break down quickly what makes it an absinthe. Is it from grapes, right? It's a distillate that has a focus on Artemisia absinthium. So that's the binomial name for the plant, Artemisia absinthium. And the history of that goes back to the Bible. The wormwood is mentioned in the Bible eight time, uh, nine times. And it mentions it as an adjective towards bitterness. The study of herbs and what goes into them goes actually back to um, Hippocrates. And Hippocrates is the father of, of, of medicine. So he was the one that kind of organized things to say, this is what this does, this is what this does. Now, the Chinese were already doing that before, but he had an organized view of it. And then he's the one that created the Hippocratic wine, which is basically vermouth. He was taking herbs and saying, instead of uh, basically keeping an herb moist and like having it preserved, we can put it in alcohol and the alcohol will absorb the elements of it to a degree, right? So he creates the Hippocratic wine. And then you basically start leaking that into, I mean, chartreuse comes along. The, those that, the, that chartreuse has wormwood in it too. And even the word vermouth means wormwood in German. Vermouth, yeah. Yeah. There's no official definition because it's depending on, like, I think the Swiss are the main ones that have, the French probably have uh, their own definition of it as well. But, you know, the Swiss, I think, have, like, a very specific definition of what absinthe is when, you know, and that they control their production of it. I believe absinthe should be made from grapes. I believe that you're sourcing uh, the terroir because wormwood grows in such a funky way. You can only harvest it once a year at a specific season and you can't trim the whole thing. You can only take a certain amount off of it. And even that, you can't have any stems. You can only get the leaves. If the stem gets in there, the entire batch you're going to make is ruined. The discipline it takes for that can only be done by people taking it seriously. And then you take the art of making absinthe and you wipe all that education out for a hundred years, basically. And then people come right back to it and think that they can just throw it together. Did we, did we finish the story on the uh, prohibition of absinthe? Oh, oh right. right. I think so. Because there was forces that converged, right? So there was the, the as you said, the lobbying by the winemakers. Lo- wine lobbyists. And then there was the famous absinthe murders. murders. So basically this dude wakes up at 4.30 in the morning and he... Starts his day off with brandy and tea. As you should. And goes out in the field. Yeah. I feel like I should tell this in a different tone. I'd be like, where's my mic? It started off in a dark night in France. <laughs> Actually, it was in Switzerland. Uh, it wasn't France. So he goes, drinks 4.30 in the morning, goes out, tends to the farm, goes and meets with some friends, has a bottle of wine, goes back to his farm, goes out to the market, has some uh, piquette, which is grape pulp leftovers. So it's like the leftovers of wine. Drink some more. 
uh, comes back to the house, drinks some more, meets with his neighbor, drinks some more. And then around five o'clock in the afternoon, he tells his wife to clean his shoes and she gives him some lip. And so he goes and gets a gun and shoots her and shoots both of his kids. And then they find out that she was pregnant too. So basically he killed uh, four people. And when the police arrive, he's in the farm, he's in the barn with like the kid wrapped around his kids wrapped around his arms. He was questioned and they was like, I drank the, I drank something and it, it made me do this. And they were like, out of all the things he drank, they're like, absolutely was one of them. Let's put it on that. So the village basically two months later has a get together. And they got over 80,000 signatures to make absinthe illegal in that area. And that coincided with the time, both in America, but also in Europe, where the teetotaler movement uh, was also growing. There was, I think, it was led, uh, there was a lot of women leadership in there because, you know, uh, women didn't have the right to vote. But they were basically, there was a movement against what was perceived to be kind of a social downfall being caused by all the excessive drinking. And so that teetotaler movement happened to be gaining steam right around that time. You know, something being illegal spawns all sorts of, you know, stories about its, about its uh, notorious nature. And when absent, I remember when absent became legal in the U.S., like, 2007. you know, it, yeah, 2007 was the fodder uh, for uh, American college kids who were looking to not only get drunk, but, you know, Try get something. high and get, you know, see the Green Fairy and, you know, obviously... Public, you know, mainstream culture also kind of led to that. I mean, I still to this day order and drink a lot of absinthe. Like a death in the afternoon for me is amazing because good absinthe should not have any sugar in it. It shouldn't have any food coloring in it. And so Ernest Hemingway was a diabetic. He was a lot of things. Alcoholic, spy, writer. He was a diabetic. So he would drink death in the afternoons all the time. And that's because he loved his mix of champagne and absinthe. So the original recipe for Death in the Afternoon was printed in the New York Post in 1910. And it calls for a glass of champagne with a serving of absinthe and a squeeze of a lemon wedge. There's no sugar added to it. So basically you just have a quarter ounce of absinthe. Crisp aperitif. Yeah, and it's delicious. And if it's done right, you it's die. like it hits. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> well, Death in the Afternoon is actually based on the, the matador in Spain. So when the matador and the bull go against each other, one of them's going to die. So you drink champagne to celebrate the fact that one of them's alive, one of them's dead, but you celebrate the lives of both. And then he came to write that book, but then he also was a big fan of absinthe in general. But he was diabetic. So he loved drinking absinthe because no you could get, yeah, no sugar. If absinthe were a song, what song would it be? So I thought about that and I chose, uh, which I think is pretty appropriate. The animals don't let me be misunderstood. And not just because of the name of the song, but I looked at the lyrics and I think it's a dialogue between the the absent talking to the consumer and the consumer talking to the absent. So if you read the lyrics or you listen to the lyrics, and I would say mostly the Joe Cocker version, not like the animals version or there's a lot of people like... Nina Simone version. Yeah, Nina Simone, she has hers. And there's even one that's on the Kill Bill soundtrack. There's this, like, especially Joe Cocker has that voice that's like, dude, this guy has survived some stuff. He's got <laughs> grit. He's got, 
Because he has this voice that's like, I believe the words he's saying because he kind of sounds like he's he's just daring himself to say the words because he's got this raspy thing. So if you listen to the song, you think Joe Cocker's talking to Absinthe and then the Absinthe is talking back to him and he's saying the words. It's kind of funny. And it's kind of interesting to hear that and be like, oh, it's, I'm sorry I took advantage of you being an alcohol. And the other one's like, uh, I'm sorry I got you drunk. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to have to listen to that song with new ears. So since our interview with Josh, I've had a chance to explore Absinthe personally. I did go buy a bottle of some Pernod, and I've, I've quickly become a fan of this drink because it's so simple to it's so simple to consume. You just add water to just very little absinthe, and um, it's it's such a refreshing, easy to drink beverage. If you on do it the right that, way, yeah. If you do it the right way, and on top of that, then uh, Payne and I went and had absinthe out in the real world. We went to Porvu. We went to Petit Trois, yeah. both uh, French establishments or French-themed establishments, and um, got to try variations on um, or their their versions of a couple of cocktails. For me, I had Death in the Afternoon, which Josh talked about, and a Sazerac. I think you touch upon uh, a pretty interesting point, uh, you know, in terms of your journey towards from not knowing so much about it to really, truly enjoying it and it being like, kind of your nightcap um is that the beginner's kind of idea of absinthe is this crazy thing high proof tastes very strong licorice and and just like whoa you know and then through a little bit of application of knowledge from people who who know about this stuff uh you realize oh okay so i don't need to be taking it as a shot but if i actually just apply ice cold water and lengthen it I have something that has the complexity of a cocktail, you know, right. with two ingredients. With with two ingredients, you know, it's 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 got all the herbal botanical flavor profiles in there, and so and then if you want to sweeten like a cocktail, well, you can add sugar as you wish, and you essentially have something that's very similar to an easy to make cocktail at home for people who don't have, you know, extensive home bars and, and extensive knowledge. And, and that's, you know, and that gap was bridged via information. And that's the beauty of it. It's like you said, like you don't want to invest in a lot of ingredients and equipment. And with absinthe, you don't need to. You already have it, except minus the absinthe. You just got to buy the bottle. Should you become more interested, you can go to your neighborhood respectable watering hole and ask for some of these absinthe cocktails and see if you like them. We mentioned Death in the Afternoon which is uh, essentially absinthe and champagne. I like that with a little lemon twist. That's probably one of the ones with the more substantial absinthe content. Most of the absinthe cocktails, they're quarter ounce at, right. at most to like a spray. So like, you know, the uh, Sazerac is another classic cocktail that features absinthe. And absinthe is essentially there for its high aromatic uh, content by just, uh, you know, rinsing the glass prior to adding the whiskey into the drink, you know. Mm-hmm. There are drinks like the Corpse Reviver Number Two that uh, has a couple of dashes of absinthe in there. It's mostly for that uh, botanical note because it is very strongly flavored. So there aren't that many absinthe cocktails that feature absinthe as the base ingredients. I think probably absinthe frappe is, is the most prominent one I could think of, which is basically absinthe with crushed ice and some sugar, frappéed or essentially kind of whipped. Right. Um, and that's a delicious, refreshing. Song. And that's made with the the fountain. Is that 
No, oh, and then there's the absinthe drip, of course, okay. which is um, that's probably the uh, it's the most famous. The most famous. Yeah. It's it's you know absinthe ounce and a half to two ounces of it in your glass, and if you have a traditional absinthe fountain, that's great. If not, you know you apply chilled water by by the drops. Mm-hmm. And you either have sugar or, as Josh mentioned, he sure. prefers it without sugar, uh, I suppose, depending on to your taste and the type of absinthe you have. Some are more, you know, sweeter than others. And if you care to check out some absinthe and you're wondering how do you navigate through this world of, you know, if you go to your liquor store and you might see a lot of varieties or online, there's a couple of brands that I think are worth your time. These are not exclusive, but I think, you know, these are ones that are both good to try and emblematic of different styles of absinthe. So on the Swiss side, we have Kubler. That's a noted one. French, there's the classic Pernod, as you mentioned. Uh, there's also Vieux Pontelier. That's a, uh, an old French style that's been revived. On the American side, you have uh, St. George absinthe, a little bit more unique botanicals in there. Still get the anise, but um, it's not as prominent as, uh, say, Pernod. I had a, I had a question. Um, do all absinthe have to have wormwood? Is that so? The classic definition yeah. of of an absinthe would be um, wormwood because it's it's also wormwood is a bittering agent as well as a medicinal component. So this leads me to kind of like the follow up that I don't think we went into with Josh in depth is the chemical in wormwood that thujon or tujon. I'm not yeah, sure of the correct thujon, that thujon. basically that's what was made illegal. Initially, that was what was illegal, right? That's the THC. Um, yeah, the T H U J, the T H U J O N E, thug one. <laughs> that's the that's the THC ingredient or the active ingredient of wormwood, which is what they claim causes hallucinations and, and, and all that bad behavior. Right. Yeah, and and effectively, I think to overturn the uh, absinthe ban in the U.S., people were lobbying for that. Basically, showed scientific evidence that. You know, the amount of thujon that you need to actually have these adverse reactions, if you're trying to get it through absinthe, you're much more likely to die of alcohol poisoning before right. you ever get enough of the thujon to make you crazy. All right. Quickly, give me your thoughts on setting it on fire. Uh, I think it's not something that uh, – it's not considered the authentic or, or kind of, you know, way to drink it. But it certainly can be fun, and uh, nobody should stop you from having your fun. And certainly, like from a bartending perspective, there's there's some showy elements that can, uh, you know, that um, that it lends to it. So I think it depends on what what you want to get into. But as far as like drinking it for uh, its appreciation, I don't think the the burning of it is going to do anything for you. <laughs> All right. So for anyone wanting to find out more, you wrote a great article a few years back really comprehensive going over a lot of what we talked about. So that'll be in the show notes as well. In the show notes, we'll have the brand Rex as well as the cocktail. Yeah. A couple cocktail recipes if you care to make it at home. Thank you for listening to the well podcast for mindful drinking. Special thanks to our friends at Farside TV for letting us use their studio to record portions of this episode. Please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast content.